A man once said, in a small town there was a nativity scene that showed great skill and talent had gone into creating it. One small feature bothered me, he said. The three wise men were wearing firemen's helmets. Totally unable to come up with a reason or explanation, I left. At a quick stop on the edge of town, I asked the lady behind the counter about the helmets. She got upset yelling at me. You stupid Yankees never do read the Bible. I assured that I did, but simply couldn't recall anything about firemen in the Bible. She jerked her Bible from behind the counter and thumbed through some pages. She finally jabbed her finger at a passage, sticking it in my face. She said, see, it says right here, three wise men came from afar. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a minute. No, three wise men came from a fire from the east. Who were they and why did they come? What did they expect? What was the messianic expectation? Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Who were these magi? I want to talk a little bit about who they were, and then we'll look at some lessons that these wise men still teach us today. What can we learn from these wise men? At that time, all we know about these particular wise men is what we read in the Bible from a few verses in Matthew chapter 2 and from what we know about the Magi from history and from the Old Testament, which is quite extensive. We don't know anything particular about these Magi, but what we can learn about Magi uh, tells us quite a bit. We don't know exactly where they came from or what kind of transport brought them, whether it was camels or horses or, or a caravan. And in legend and in myth and history, it, it's really clouded much of what we talk about the wise men today. During the Middle Ages, the legend developed that they were kings, that they were kings themselves. We sing that, we three kings, uh, that they were three in number. Uh, they brought three gifts. That's probably because the scripture says they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So they think, well, there was three of them. And uh, somewhere along the line, somebody even named them and said they were Caspar, Belthasar, and, and Melchior. And because they were thought to represent the sons of Noah, one of them is often pictured as an Ethiopian. And in the 5th century AD, they found that there were frescoes where one of them was pictured as an older man, a middle-aged man, and then a a young man, and that they rode camels. Now, quite frankly, that makes for great Christmas cards and stories and some of my favorite Christmas carols and those kinds of things, but it's probably not quite accurate, but what we know is accurate uh, tells us a lot more about uh, the wise men. In New Testament time, the Magi were known as a priestly tribe of the Parthians. Now we have to back up a little bit here because uh, Daniel was taken into captivity in the Babylonian Empire and then the Babylonian Empire was taken over by the Medes and the Persians and Daniel overlapped that, you'll remember. He served King Darius who was a Mede and a Persian and then it was the Persian Empire for several centuries and then by Jesus' day it was called the Parthian Empire. It was taken over by those that they called the Parthians. But basically, they were still all, all Persian. And one of the interesting things about the Parthian Empire is not even the might of Rome itself could conquer the Parthians. Part of the problem was they were separated by desert and, and, and geography. But the Parthians, even in the time of Rome, were basically just as powerful 
as, as, the, Par- or as the Romans. And uh, so the Parthians lived east of, of Judea, in the region around Babylon, and then that area. The word magi, or magos in the Greek, it's really an untranslatable word, even though we often uh, translate it as wise men. The word magi refers to their tribe. They were the tribe of the magi. Just like the Levites in the 12 tribes of Israel, the Levites were the priestly tribe within all the other tribes that comprised Israel. And so the magi were the priestly tribe within uh, the tribes of the, the Persians and the Parthians. And like the Levites, they were born into their tribe and therefore they were born into their priestly responsibilities and duties. The word magi first appeared in history in the 7th century BC as a tribe within the Median nation in eastern Mesopotamia. You might remember Mesopotamia from your history when you were in grade school, the the cradle of civilization, the Tigris-Euphrates River uh, of Babylon in, in that area. It may also be that like Abraham, the Magi came from ancient Ur in Chaldea, from the Ur of the Chaldees, because in the book of Daniel, the Magi are referred to as the Chaldeans, as the Chaldeans. And the word Magi soon came to be associated with this legend or this hereditary, hereditary priesthood within that tribe. Now, the Magi were skilled in both astronomy and astrology. And in those days, the scientific study of astronomy, of the movement of the stars and and those kind of things, and then the stars they couldn't understand because they moved in funny places were called in the Greek the planeo. That's where we get our word planet from. Uh, The the Magi called them the planeo. They, They move all over the place. But they studied astronomy, the movement of the stars, but they also studied astrology, believing that something of the movement of the stars affected their lives and uh, was part of of their destiny. Now, interestingly, the Magi had a sacrificial system that was very similar to the one that God gave through Moses. And they were monotheistic. They believed in in one God. They worshipped one God. However, they were involved in various occultic practices, including sorcery. And they were especially noted for their ability to interpret dreams. And it's from their name we get the word magic or magician from the word magi. Now because of their combined knowledge of science, agricultural, mathematics, history, and the occult, their religious and political influence continued to grow over the centuries. And they became the most powerful and most prominent group of advisors in the Medo-Persian Empire. And then subsequently in the Babylonian Empire. You only remember, it talks about in the book of Esther and in the book of Daniel, there's the law of the Medes and the Persians. It was the Magi who gave the law of the Medes and the Persians. Uh, It was founded by the Magi, and so that is why it is good to call them wise men. Now that's a little bit about who the Magi were. When we get to what they did and what their responsibilities were, we start to see why they journeyed to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem. Historians tell us that no Persian was ever able to become king, and that includes the ones we read about in the Bible, Darius and Xerxes and Ahasuerus, I can't even say that today, (laughs) the the husband of, of Esther, who was also Xerxes in history. 
None of these kings were able to be crowned king and become king without mastering the scientific and religious disciplines of the Magi. This was part of their training. And then it was the Magi who approved of them and crowned them to be king. So in short, the Magi were not kings themselves, they were king makers. They were powerful, influential king makers. In Persia, even in, in Esther's time, they had absolute say over who would become king, who would become, be king, how that king was trained and prepared to be king. And then in Esther chapter 1, verse 13, we also see that the Magi controlled all the judicial appointments, all the judges in the kingdom. So next to the king whom they had appointed, the Magi were the most powerful men in the Persian Empire. And we learn from the book of Daniel that the Magi were among the highest ranking officials in Babylon. Because the Lord gave Daniel the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which none of the other court seers were able to do, it says that in Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, Daniel was appointed to be ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel became head over all the Magi. And because of his great wisdom, because he had successfully pleaded for the lives of the wise men who had failed to interpret the king's dream, Daniel was held in high regard among the rest of the Magi and he was, in fact, their head. In fact, that plot against Daniel that landed him in the lion's den, that was form, fomented by the, the jealous satraps and other commissioners, the political commissioners and, and rulers. It wasn't the Magi. The Magi held Daniel in high regard. And when we talk about why the Magi journeyed to Jerusalem, we start with the influence of Daniel. It has to start there. Because of Daniel's high position and great respect among the Magi, it seems certain that they learned much from the prophet Daniel about the one true God, the God of Israel, and about his will and about his plans for his people through the coming of the glorious king. Because most of the Jews remained in Babylon after the exile, and intermarried with people of the East, Jewish messianic influence and expectation remained high in that part of the world, even until Jesus' day. There would have been something about the star that they saw while they were in the East that began to connect the dots for them, as it will. Combining their knowledge, which they had received from Daniel, and with the significance of the star that God had shown them, they knew the one that had been prophesied by Daniel had been born. So turn once again to the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll work through this very quickly and then, then apply it. Chapter 2 at verse 1. With these three verses in Matthew chapter 2, we can put the Magi into the historical context at the birth of Christ. Verse 1 again of Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with them. 
This is where the picture begins to change a little bit from our Christmas carols and nativity scenes and, and those kind. And that's okay. We Three Kings is still one of my favorite ones. Yeah. yeah, but, you know, however many there were, they would not have traveled alone. It just wouldn't have been possible for three men on three camels to travel over a thousand miles along the edge of the desert. Uh, they would have backtracked the same way that... Uh, Daniel had been taken into captivity. Go north to Damascus. I'll go this way, so it's no this way, so it's the same on your map. No, this way. <laughs> go from Jerusalem north to Damascus. Follow over, right on the edge of this big desert of six or eight hundred miles, and then come down towards Babylon, the Tigris Euphrates River, and then come south and, and that way. And uh, some historians, well, they would have traveled with a full entourage, probably a caravan, just to make the trip to survive it. And some historians estimate that there would have been as many as 100 Persian cavalry with them on powerful Persian steeds. The Magi were very powerful men. They were very, very influential men. They would have been protected in that way in some regard. They would have camped outside of Jerusalem and there would have been several tents and there, there may have been camels, but there were horses. There would have been armed cavalry. And we know from history that at this very time, Herod's army was out of town. His army was up fighting in the north on behalf of one of the other governors because there was constant warfare and fighting in that part of the world just like it is today. And uh, so anybody that, that needed help and was still subservient to Rome would call, they'd call upon each other to fight battles. And whether it was 20 or whether it was 200 that were encamped outside of Jerusalem, here was these very powerful king makers who had come from Parthia. And it was the Parthians that Herod had waged war against and drove out of Israel in order to parcel out his kingdom. Mark Antony and Caesar Augustus had declared that Herod was, use these exact words, king of the Jews. And the Roman Senate ratified Herod as king of the Jews. And he was a murderous tyrant and he had spent decades killing thousands of people and waging war in order to protect his kingdom. For 30-some years he had done this. He had driven out the Parthians, and now powerful kingmakers from the east scatter through Jerusalem asking about Herod's worst nightmare. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And it says, Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Because when Herod was troubled, everybody was troubled. Because when Herod was troubled, it meant people were going to die. They are going to die. Verse 4. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, they inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. 
lie, lie, it was a, it was a scheme. But the Magi had come to worship, that we may worship him. So this wasn't just a political thing where they were going to crown the king and uh, appoint the king. They also considered this child who was born was worthy of worship, that he was divine, that he was the one, the divine Messiah who was sent by God. Verse 9, after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them till it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. What can we learn from these Magi? The point that concerns us the most this morning is the important lessons that this story gives us. First of all, we see that true servants of God are in unexpected places. They're in unexpected places. We would call that Iran and Iraq today. That's where it is geographically. The true servants of God are in unexpected places. These verses in Matthew's gospel show us that there may be true servants of God in places where we would not expect to find servants of God. Matthew doesn't tell us about the obscure shepherds, but suddenly the magi burst onto the scene from out of nowhere. Who are these guys? Why have they come? But what is very clear is that God has been working in their lives, maybe for a long, long time, and in very specific ways. Even though they were hundreds of miles away, probably 1,000 to 1,200 miles away from the most important event in all of human history, the birth of Christ, yet God, apart from the messianic expectation that's going on in Judea and around Jerusalem at that time, apart from the political wranglings of Rome and Herod and everybody else in that region, God reached into the heart and into the lives of these magi and gave them this messianic expectation that Christ is coming. And in effect, he said to them, I'm going to bring you to Jesus Christ. I'm going to bring you to Jesus Christ. You know, even today, the Lord has many hidden ones, we could say, like these wise men. Their story on earth may be as little known as some of the people in the Bible. Melchizedek, Jethro, Enoch. What do we know of them and their story and their lives? But their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life from the foundation of the world. And they will be found to be with Christ at his appearing. And that's just as true today. You know, the Holy Spirit can and does lead souls to Christ without the help of any outward means. Men and women may be born in dark places on this earth, and they are. And like the wise men, God makes them wise for salvation. I like what uh, J.C. Ryle, the scholar, says. He says, there are some traveling to heaven at this moment of whom the church and the world know nothing. They flourish in secret places like the lily among thorns and seem to waste their sweetness on the desert air. But Christ loves them, and they love Christ. You know, whenever skeptics ask about, you know, that, that you know, what about the people 
that live where they've never had an opportunity to hear the gospel in deepest, darkest Africa or whatever, you know, God's not going to condemn them, is he? And the biblical answer to that is very simple. I think of the Roman centurion Cornelius in the book of Acts, a God-fearing Gentile of all, of all people. Yet God gave him a dream at the exact same time that God gave an apostle, the Apostle Peter a dream and he brought them together so that Cornelius and all his household might be saved. And I think of the Magi who also responded to the light which God had given to them. And they were both led into the greater light of Jesus Christ. That's the way our God works. You know, because of the political sensitivities and danger of which many people in the world face, it's not appropriate to be specific about the accounts. But today, God is bringing countless people to Jesus Christ in many places where there's no evangelist and there's no outward presentations of the gospel. God is doing it. Tune in to Haven Today sometime or one of those other stories or what Samaritan's Purse is doing and you'll hear story after story and I've heard them for years 30 40 years I've heard of these stories of God being people to Christ in places that in these in these hidden places and secondly by looking at the magi we see those who give Christ most honor these verses show us that it's not always those who have the most religious privileges or opportunities who give Christ the most honor we might have thought that the scribes and the Pharisees, having read it from the prophet Micah, and these very important influential people coming to town and putting two together, they read it in their scriptures. He's to be born in Bethlehem, right over the hills, right over here, six miles southeast. An easy trip from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. You think that on the slightest rumor the Messiah had come, these guys would have jumped on their camels or whatever and they would have gone to Bethlehem to look as well. But it was not so. It was a few unknown strangers from a distant land and some unknown shepherds that Luke tells us that were the first to rejoice at his birth. John tells us that Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. You know, that's a mournful picture of human nature. Oftentimes, those who have the most advantages and have the most translations of the Bible available and those kind of things are sometimes the hardest people to reach and the last to get it. I don't think it's a healthy thing at all that Christmas is so popular in our culture in America, that the stories are so well known that they're taken for granted that there's a church almost on every corner that people think, oh, it'll be there, it'll be there, I'll go when I'm ready, when I feel like it, when sports don't get in the way, and those kind of things, you know, it's always, it's always going to be there. Often those who live nearest to the means of grace are those who neglect it the most. Someone has said sarcastically, but there's a sharp touch of a little bit of reality here. He said, the nearer the church, the farther from God. Wouldn't that be something? Familiarity with sacred things sometimes has an awful tendency to make people despise those sacred things. There are many who, from where they live, their residence and the convenience, ought to be the first, ought to be the foremost in the worship of God, but uh, they're often the last. And there are many whom we might be expected to be the last who get there, but they're always first. 
And there's a reason for this. And this is the third lesson we learned from the Magi, that there is head knowledge without heart knowledge. Head knowledge without heart knowledge. Why didn't the scribes and the Pharisees hasten to Bethlehem? It's simply because they didn't believe it here. They didn't believe it in their heart. They, they believed it up here. They had a knowledge of Scripture in their head while there was no grace in their heart. We see this throughout the Gospels. The scribes and the Pharisees would give an accurate interpretation of the Scriptures, but it was all in their heads. And their heads, they thought, were better than their hearts. They would not believe in Christ even when he ministered among them. We need to beware of resting satisfied with head knowledge alone. It's an excellent thing when it's rightly used. I got two master's degrees basically in head knowledge, but I also learned a lot about heart knowledge when I was in seminary as well. A person can have all kinds of head knowledge and can still perish everlastingly. We must always ask the question, what is the state of our hearts? It's not enough to know in the head that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It's not enough to know in our head that he ministered and he taught and he did miracles. It's not enough to know in our head that he died on the cross for the sins of the world. But you have to know it also here in the heart. Do you believe it? In the heart. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And fourth, these verses show us a splendid example of spiritual diligence. Diligence. You know, it had to be a lot of trouble to pack up the camel's caravan, whatever it was, and to travel from your homes and, and go to a house where Jesus was to be, a trip of over a thousand miles across desert and desolate lands. It would have been a perilous journey. Some of the, the Villages and towns they would have had to travel through and some of the watering holes. Boy, you'd need a lot of protection, not only spiritually, but physically in those places. And no matter what kind of journey it was or how they traveled, they would have taken precautions for all of this. But none of these things moved them away from it. They had set their hearts on seeing him who had been born king of the Jews. And they never rested till they saw him. You know, it'd be well for professing Christians today if they were more ready to follow the example of these wise men. You know, it's good to ask today, where is our self-denial? What pains do we take about means of grace? And by means of grace, I mean worship, Bible study, prayer, fellowship, surrender. What pains do we take? What diligence do we show about following Christ? What does our religion cost us? These are serious questions, and they deserve serious consideration. The truly wise, it may be feared, as one person said, it may be few. And lastly, these verses show a striking example of faith. The wise men believed in Christ, in a Christ they had never seen. But that was not all. They believed in him when the scribes and Pharisees were unbelieving. But that is not all. They believed in him when they saw him as a little infant on Mary's knees and they worshipped him as king and as Lord. That was the crowning point of their faith. They saw no miracles to convince them. They heard no preaching 
to persuade them or teaching. They saw no signs of divinity and, and uh, greatness to overawe them. There were no halos behind anybody's head. There was just the smell of the, the stable. They saw nothing but a newborn infant lying there helpless, if not for his mother, Mary, and his stepfather, Joseph, helpless and weak, needing a mother's care like any one of us. And yet when they saw that infant, they believed that they saw the divine Savior of the world. They bowed down and worshipped him. You know, we read of no greater faith in all the volume of the Bible than this. To me, this is the greatest faith in all of Scripture. It's a faith that deserves to be placed side by side with that of the penitent thief on the cross next to Jesus. The thief on the cross, being crucified there next to the Lord Jesus, saw someone who was dying the death of a criminal. The wise men saw a newborn baby on the lap of a poor woman. The thief on the cross called him Lord and said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the wise men fell on their faces and worshipped him. They saw that he was the Christ. This is the kind of faith that our God delights to honor. Whenever the Bible is read and the Christmas story is told, the faith of these wise men is known and and we see it as a memorial to their faith. You know, we have a thousand times more evidence than the wise men had. We have the word of God. We can see God working in people's lives. Why, why don't so many believe? And how many of us in this country, even at this moment on this very day, are bowing down and worshiping him and presenting gifts to him? Or are they more concerned about the buys that they get on the Saturday before Christmas, which is the biggest retail shopping day of the year. But we need to ask the question, what is the best gift that we can give to Christ? You ever thought about what is the best gift that you can give to Christ? You know what it is? This is incredible. The best gift that we can give to Christ is accepting what he has given to us. Accepting what he has given to us. That he died on the cross that we might have forgiveness of our sins. That we might be in fellowship with him and with one another for all eternity. The gift that he gave us that he adopts us into his family as a child of God to live with him. You know, the problem is your head might be telling you something different. People's heads do there, do that. You know, when we start talking about these kind of things, there's always that tendency from our human nature that says, oh, don't go there. You don't want to go there. Tell the Magi, oh, you don't want to do that. You know, in the, the movie Nativity that I've talked about the last couple of weeks, you know, they did a good job of showing not all the Magi wanted to make that trip. You know, and finally, only two of them left, and the third one wasn't going to go. And the third one finally shows up and says, you know, I'm the wisest of all. How are you going to get by without me kind of thing? And then as they're traveling on, the journey is getting very tedious and very hard. You know, one of the magi asked the other one, he says, you know, how many days have you regretted this journey? And he says, 106. And he says, but we've only traveled 105 days. And he says, I'm 
counting tomorrow. <laughs> you know, this was a tough thing. Everything tells us you don't want to go there. But what is the Holy Spirit of God telling us in our hearts? He's saying, come here. Come here. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we words cannot express and Lord, there are, are days that quite frankly, you know, we as preachers say, hey, we're cre preaching to the choir. <laughs> you know, Father, I thank you for our church and I thank you for the love these people have for you and, and your love for us. And we look around on a Sunday morning like this and we think of all the people that for whatever reason this morning, and I'm not thinking about those who from illness and other things that wanted to be here but couldn't, Lord, but I'm thinking of those in our community. For whatever reason, they heard that voice say this morning, you don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. Father, I just pray that you would be at work. Touching people's hearts. Helping them to respond to you, Lord. And we would be pleased and privileged to be models of faith, to be models of diligence, as were the wise men, Lord, to be used of you to bring people to Jesus Christ, that through your Holy Spirit they might want to say, I want to be there. I want to be there. I want to worship you. I want to Give my life as a living sacrifice which is acceptable and pleasing to God. Father, I pray that through your Holy Spirit you would show us and use us in order that people would say, I want to be there. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.